when you see a box, it's natural to start assuming you know what's inside it. A robin egg color blue Tiffany box would lead you to believe inside there's expensive jewelry. A black and red Nike box with the Jumpman logo might make you conclude there's a pair of Jordan sneakers inside. In fact, when it comes to most consumer products, the packaging is every bit as much a part of the purchase as the product itself. But these rather innocuous verdicts of material things are justifiable. No one's going to be hurt if you look at the shape, color, size, or even pick up the box and consider the weight, and then jump to a conclusion, perhaps reasonably, about its inner contents. But if this kind of knee-jerk judgment started and stopped with merchandise, well, perhaps some of us wouldn't feel so much dissension just walking down a public street. 37-year-old Pruitt Donovan has never known what it's like to walk down a street and not feel dissension. For as long as he could remember, he could feel himself being examined. Eyes of strangers, family, and even people he considered friends would look him up and down, stare a second or two longer than necessary, some even squinting to try and find the words so that they themselves, mentally, had a way of understanding what, exactly, it was that their eyes were seeing when they looked at him. Pruitt, you see, was a box that nobody, not even his own mother, could concisely and truthfully tell you what was inside. Now, Pruitt isn't by any means perfect, but his vices, and like many people, he has a number of vices that would take a lifetime's worth of attention to overcome. They have never been among the things that caused people to write him off as a lost cause. Don't believe me? Well, let's take a look at some of them, and I'll let you be the judge. Since childhood, coming up in Springfield, Ohio, Pruitt was always on the rather plump side. Now, he would be the first to tell you that he's always held on to, and always had trouble getting rid of, that extra hundred pounds or more, due to the fact that he found comfort in food and joy in eating. So he quite often overdid it. Come to think of it, this act of overdoing it with food often spilt over into other aspects of his life, as he was prone to covet material things while holding on to his possessions tightly even when he had more than he needed also even when it might benefit someone else if he shared. And when others happened to have something he liked, oh, he found it difficult, damn near impossible, not to want it for himself, whether it was material things or even people. Now, although he didn't have a criminal record, 
those close to him often feared making him upset. What people called an attitude problem when he was young became just a reason to avoid him when he grew into adulthood because he will always find ways to get you or get even with you. And to top it all off, for the longest time, he wouldn't even acknowledge these traits as things he needed to address. In his eyes, besides maybe shedding a couple pounds to look even better in his clothes, he would outright tell you that he was perfect. So, to recap, Pruitt had a tendency to be gluttonous, greedy, envious, lustful, lazy, short-tempered, and worst of all, prideful. Yep, you counted correctly. That is exactly all seven of the deadly sins. Now, Pruitt is not a completely abhorrent person, and if I've painted him that way, please forgive me. I'm simply trying to make the point that Pruitt is actually just human. Not all that different from me. Or you. Now, it would be easy to psychoanalyze Pruitt and say that he was this way because he was compensating or trying to find a way to cope with something in his life. But I won't play armchair doctor in order to conclude something one way or the other. Again, though, over Pruitt's 37 years, he had picked up each and every one of the seven deadly sins. But that, my friends, not a single one of those actual sins was the reason why people looked at him for a second or two longer than needed when he walked down the street or sat in a classroom or even made his way around his own home growing up. No, the reason why eyes, which sends the signal to the minds that come away with judgment, could not look away from Pruitt was because it was hard to really tell what was inside the box they were looking at. In other words, this type of ambiguity, or as some might better define it as androgyny, doesn't always feel normal to people who, of course, are certain they know for sure what normal really is. It was 1879 when Thomas Edison patented the light bulb. It wasn't until 1959 that a New Yorker named Joel Spira gave us the dimmer switch. This simple sliding mechanism allowed us to start having more than just all light or no light at all. With the savvy dimmer now, the amount of light or dark in a room can be somewhere in between. Now, it may seem like a reach to compare electrical inventions to human beings, but please consider the parallel here. Now that we have the dimmer, lights, much like people, can now show you that they're actually not just one thing or the other, not all the way one way or all the way another way. 
Just as people are seldom all black or all white, some folks, as the dimmer switch allows, fall further away from the top or bottom of the gradient, somewhere along a very long spectrum, in between. Like all other aspects of our lives, wouldn't it be safe to say that people, and this probably goes for more people than you know, are simply not all or nothing? The thing is, though, when you're like Pruitt was before he left Ohio, stuck in your little town where everybody's pretending to be the same because you go to the same school, attend the same church, and worship the same way, and eat the same food, and wear the same types of clothes, love the same types of people, of course, that means if you're a boy, it's girls. If you're a girl, it's boys. You know how it goes. When you're stuck in a place like this, and your box or rather what's really going on inside it, doesn't meet people's expectations, you can feel it, whether they say anything or not. But trust me, they, somebody, is going to say something. And that is what happened to Pruitt. No, people didn't say much about his virtues, and they didn't even condemn him for his many vices. They actually accepted the bad stuff because, in some way, they understood it. But they had a lot to say about this one aspect of his being that just didn't look right to them. So Pruitt left his hometown when he was 25, with no money, barely a high school education, and no prospects, and has been in and around Washington, D.C. ever since. Because D.C., he heard, was a decent place, not too big or too small, where he could maybe just blend in and maybe even one day safely open his box and allow the world to see that what was inside was actually something beautiful that was simply in the wrong box all his life. There's a word that might define Pruitt and people like him. But even as a writer, I know that sometimes words aren't even the best things to use in some cases. Because what Pruitt and people like him go through, I guess you can say, it's just part of the isness of life, not for your understanding or articulation. Because it's not about what you believe or what you believe is in their boxes based on what you see from the outside. I mean, how can you not believe what a person knows to be in their box? Even if what's inside their box is not what's in yours, or what you've been told should be inside boxes that look like theirs. Pruitt recently met someone and has told them all about who he is, who he really is inside. He's loosened his grip on those deadly sins, and I'm happy to say that they don't have as strong a hold on him anymore. But like all of us, Pruitt is a work in progress. No, you still can't always just look at him as a box and assume you know what's inside. But then again, why would you do that with anybody to begin with? 
I'm Kayana Ebony Brown. And this is a story of music and men. So here's how this convoluted mess of a scenario I got myself into was set to go. The guy Dante, the one I'd met up with on Wisconsin Avenue while with my friend Solomon, apparently knew the guy doing renovation work on the club's general manager's house. The handyman would text Mr. Chan when she left for work. Mr. Chan, who was also a patron of this handyman's services, ran a small tax business across the street from the club. Mr. Chan would then text a building manager who not only had the keys to the club, but was also scheduled for a visit that day. That building manager would be the one to let me in. Now that call I'd received while I was with TK was from Dante, guy from Wisconsin Avenue, telling me to be at the club in 20 minutes. The GM, he said, usually only had a 10 to 15 minute downtime window at the club on show days, which was most days. So I had to be precise in arrival and with my pitch. Hey, look, I know it sounds ridiculous, but with all of my lack of luck with getting my guy on that stage, I was willing to give just about anything the old college try at this point. Now, speaking of boxes, I want you to picture that brown box again. The one I was telling you about in the beginning. The one where Alanis Morissette, Dave Grohl, and Public Enemy made history. The one that's unassuming and unpretentious in its presentation, yet massive as it stands statuesque on the corner of V and 9th Streets in Northwest. The one where you would never really know what's going on inside unless, of course, you already knew what was going on inside. That place is called the 930 Club, and that's just what you get from it. At least, that's what I got as I stood on the corner looking up at it from outside. Now, I have been inside before to see shows. Red Gold Green, who's from D.C., made a stop on one of their first major tours. I saw Brother Ali with Homeboy Sandman here. And I even got to see Adele here as she released 21 and kicked off her tour in the States. So I have a relationship with this place, but not like the one I hope to forge today. As I stood outside going over the pitch I was about to give, the door crept open behind me. And quickly, getting my attention, was a guy who looked similar to the one who connected us. A white guy of unsubstantial height, who was probably younger than he actually looked. He was very unique looking, had the kind of face you would never forget once you saw it. But this guy carried a little bit more weight, actually a lot more weight than his rather lean friend. I assumed... This was Pruitt, the guy who I was told would let me in. 
but he never formally introduced himself. Only asked, Kenya? To which I nodded in confirmation. He then motioned his head, signaling me to follow him. I walked in behind him, keeping my eyes on each step I took, because the corridor was quite dark, and counting steps was my way of calming my nerves. Hey. After looking over and noticing where my focus was, he whispered, Head up. Can't let her think you're insecure. Dude, she hate weak people. I didn't bother to explain why my head was down. I just took his advice and pulled it up. And just this simple act, along with rolling my shoulders back, which inevitably pushed my chest out a bit, somehow made me feel like Wonder Woman. He stopped at an opening and let me know non-verbally that this was where I needed to be before walking off without so much as a good luck. Feeling alone inside the box now, I took a deep breath and stepped into the main room. The place was only partially lit given that it was about two hours before doors were set to open and four hours before the headliner would take the stage, which, tonight, was a punk band out of Philly. And the first thing I noticed was that stage and all that history. Wow. But I couldn't allow myself to remain in awe for more than a second, because to the left stood the reason I come here. A tall woman in a white Ramones t-shirt standing behind the bar, already, I could see, prepared to dismiss me before she even heard my spiel, before even looking up from her paperwork or whatever, to at least act like she cared about the gift I was here to give her. Whatever it is you're selling, I don't need it, she said with her head still down. As the competitive type, I like to figure out my opponent. But this time, the only information I had on the person in front of me was her name. Bonnie. No last name. And as of only ten seconds ago, I had also learned that she didn't like the appearance of weakness, so I kept my head up and my shoulders back. I made sure I was right across from her, opposite the bar, before I said, Boy, you sure are a hard woman to track down. And again, with no eye contact, time is spent, but can't be bought. I prefer mine not to be wasted, so... Whatever it is you're selling, I'm I'm not selling anything. I just want five minutes of I'm out of here in four, she offered with a deep breath. And the clock on the wall just above her head became apparent right at that moment. It read 556. Fine, because I only need three. With no other argument coming from her, I took this to mean that I was on the clock. So, I started... Well, my name is Kenya Shaw. I run an independent record label here in D.C., 16-9 Recordings. I had my business card ready in hand. I slid it onto the paper where her eyes were focused so that she had no other choice but to see it. Now, I have two artists. Taj Kamal is one. You might have heard of her. And Lucas, a singer-songwriter. He's who I want to talk to you about. 
from under my arm, I pulled out a copy of the newspaper that had recently written a favorable article and said, City paper even calls him DC's best kept secret, I embellished. It actually said one of the city's best kept secrets, but hey, apples to apples, right? And lastly, I had my cell phone ready to play one of our best videos, an acoustic rearranged cover of Same Old Love, a simple one-shot video of Lucas and his guitar displaying a pure untouched vocal. That Selena Gomez cover got over 60,000 views in one week. Bonnie appeared to be a bit intrigued at this point. She watched the video for a moment, maybe even two, before looking back to the paper at a picture of the same cute, skinny white boy with the guitar. It was making an impression, I suppose. Congratulations. And that was it. I knew that I would need something else, so I came equipped with a trump card, although hoping that I didn't have to use it. And as contemplation set in at that moment, I subconsciously looked down. It always feels like I can find my words down on the ground when I need them. But that, of course, was the very moment she decided to look over at me, almost catching me, looking weak. I quickly looked up and right into her eyes. And that is when I asked her, You like funny stories? She didn't give me an answer, but she did give me squinted eyes, perhaps wondering where I was going with this line of questioning. My question was rhetorical, so I went on. I don't mean funny ha-ha. I mean funny like serendipitous, you know, meant-to-be type funny. The kind of funny that makes you believe that someone, somewhere, is looking out for you. Well, you know how this goes, right? I tell her about Jim Nightingale, that car accident, the poor dear, aw, and the fact that her headliner is without an opener for the show here this Sunday. How the hell do you know all that about Jim? She said, turning back to me after having begun to walk away once she realized why I was there. Her gaze caused me to miss a breath, but I quickly recovered and came back with a body blow, starting with a smile that showed absolutely no sign of weakness. I know a lot of things. Like, I also know that Gavin DeGraw is going to be in Chicago the same day for another event. And according to my sources, the earliest he can get to D.C. would be 6 p.m. Reagan, Dulles, or BWI. No matter which airport he's flying into, there is no way he can get off that plane, get here, and be on that stage by 7 o'clock. And for a split second, she probably didn't notice it, but I did. She looked down. And that is when I knew I had her. All I had to do was close. And that's with perfect traffic. You need an opener. Nightingale is out. But someone, somewhere, is looking out for you, Miss Bonnie. Still looking at me, rather looking through me, she turned her attention to that same clock on the wall, which now read six o'clock on the nose. Okay, so... When you walked in here, I made it clear as crystal 
that I do not like my time being wasted. So as fascinating and captivating an argument as that is, you just wasted not only your time, but more importantly, mine. I am not the person you talk to about this. But you're you're GM. So you should know. I don't organize shows, sweetie. But you can tell me who does. And for the first time in our brief relationship, she offered me a smile. It was a pleasant smile. I even thought that she had a very nice smile and that she should actually smile more often. But with that smile smeared across her face... She secured her papers right next to her ribs, as she said ever so politely. You know so much. You figure it out. I didn't have anything left. And even if I had, I would have been giving it to the back of her head because that was all I could see as she walked out, leaving me alone in the room in that big brown box. episode of of music and men was written and produced by me kayana with express permission and the help of some of the most incredible indie artists in the world the song you're hearing right now is called i don't know anything by la gang and the music for your word of inspiration for this episode is tears in the rain by scott buckley All other music was provided by Filmstrong, arranged and designed for this episode by me, Kayana. Now, for more information on these artists and how you can support their efforts, visit the show notes in your podcast app or go to ofmusicandmen.com slash podcast and select this episode. If you would like to have your music featured on the show, check out our website for more information on how you can submit. Now, of course, of Music and Men is so much more than just a podcast. The novella series is available in online bookstores, and if you wish to have a physical copy, you can get it on our website at ofmusicandmen.com, where you can also get t-shirts and other kind of merch. Don't forget also to subscribe at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is you're listening to this podcast, or wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts in general. And remember to also rate and review. So that's subscribe, then rate and review. I would love to hear what you think. Lastly, connect with us on Patreon where you can become a part of this project and its journey and help it to grow to everything that it was meant to be. Plus it's some other perks to becoming a patron. So go to patreon.com slash of music and men or just go to a music and and find out where our Patreon button is and click it and go there and hit us up on Patreon. Make sure to share this episode some way, somehow, with at least one friend. 
and follow Of Music and Men everywhere online at Of Music and Men. And of course, when you do, please don't hesitate to reach out. Artists and entrepreneurs are a very unique type. We face lots of rejection, almost too often for comfort. So whether you're a seasoned business owner or creator, aspiring to be one, or simply just here to hear a great story, I want to always leave you with something to ponder until next time. Today's words are from actress and burgeoning activist Sophia Bush. Decisions are only made from two places, love or fear. So if you do the work to really break down where you're coming from, make sure you're always coming from love. Let's think about that for a moment. When you conclude things or make a decision about a person or a group of people, where exactly is that coming from? Is it coming from deep down in your heart? Or is it coming from that place in your mind that's already ready to conclude something about them based on probably what you don't know or what you fear. Let's just try to make more decisions based on love. Next time on Of Music and Men. Stax is what I would call a fair weather bachelor. Monday through Thursday, he'd go on and on about his plan to someday have a wife. But in the heat of the weekend, no recollection of that sentiment whatsoever. No point in exhausting yourself over something you may never have. And his eyes went back down into the smoothie as he aimlessly circled his straw around in it. And just like that, even a challenge-seeking optimist could begin to lose hope under the bleak overcast that is DC's love scene. For others, giving up isn't quite as easy. That night, Jay's Magazine was hosting a networking event at a lounge downtown. And although she had talked Ty into coming with her, she herself didn't actually believe it would happen. But to her surprise, at 8.33 p.m., Ty was right beside her, both head-turning in their evening attire as they entered the room filled with other equally nicely dressed professionals. Jay noticed from the moment she met her at the front door, Ty was very uncomfortable, fidgeting and looking down, and had already asked twice, though they hadn't even gotten their first drink yet, do I look okay? To which Jay replied, twice, you look great. But the third time she added, would you calm the fuck down, shit, it's not that serious. Ty tried to take her advice by first avoiding looking down at her dress. And second, asking something that had nothing to do with the way she looked. So, what is this again? It's a professional social, Jay replied. Just, you network, or flirt, whatever. Ty noticed Jay's eyes scanning the place, and she remembered that Jay was looking for someone in particular. 
So she asked. So what does this guy look like again? Oh, he's cute. He's tall, lean, kind of looks like a young Chris Rock. Ty grimaced. Chris Rock? You think Chris Rock is good looking? Really? I mean, yeah, when he's not acting so goddamn goofy, he's kind of sexy. Jay said matter-of-factly. I don't think he's acting. Look, next time you see him on TV, mute it. If you don't hear his goofy-ass mouth, you might see him differently. Ty made up in her mind that they just have to agree to disagree on this. That's next time on Of Music and Men.